ready when you are. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode four of What's Up Radio. This particular topic is interesting, Andy, because um, this one has been highly recommended, highly suggested that we get into it. And essentially what we're going to be talking to or talking about is an introduction to nootropics. This is mainly an introduction for people who are new to nootropics, for people who are interested, but don't really know where to start because there's a lot of that. For all the information out there, like most things, there's a lot of misinformation. And unfortunately, with this particular topic, we don't really have a lot of information to go off of to begin with. So it makes sense that even those of us who consider ourselves pretty seasoned in this still kind of run into some confusion with a lot of things and still find ourselves scratching our heads at times. So um, anyways, without further ado, that's the premise of this episode. We were actually just talking before the episode started about um, our, our introduction to nootropics and what that looked like back when we were in when we were in grad school together in 2015 so well, go ahead and tell everybody what you were telling me about your 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 intro to nootropics and, and how you got started using <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's actually pretty funny because it was what we were I mean I was like six months into grad school what was like what was almost done um, and what was we, we just started like playing with all these different things. I remember um, Country or uh, Matt Stefan got um, new pept and we were trying new peps and it worked really well. Um, and then I was like, well, let me let, let me try Let me see what choline does. Choline by itself, choline by tartrate. So I think I was like mega dosing choline by tartrate with like five, five to six grams at a time. And what was funny was I was also fasting for like 20 hours at a time. So... I thought this choline was doing so much for me because I was like, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm like hyper-focused all the time. But I think it was probably just the fact that I was fasting for so long that I was that was the cause of the hyper-focus. And come to realize a few months ago when talking with Will that choline by tartrate really does nothing. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I remember doing that. And for some reason, I thought like DHA, DHA by itself was like this super powerful nootropic. Um, and come to find out that it's not a super powerful nootropic. It's great for your brain, but it's not a super powerful nootropic. Right. It can actually so. work very synergistically with some nootropics. But I, yeah, you were explaining that to me. Yeah, and I'm not so sure that I would consider it a quote-unquote nootropic on its own, um, though it can be an important, I'll call it a cofactor, um, or synergistic aid. I guess you could say for some populations, it might be considered nootropic, but for healthy, general healthy populations, I, I wouldn't consider it nootropic because it really doesn't do anything to enhance brain function, mm -hmm. which kind of brings us to the topic of what is a nootropic and how do we actually define that? So, you know, I think I kind of just, I kind of just said it in that and in that last sentence and generally a nootropic is anything that can enhance cognitive activity, um, anything that can increase memory capacity or uh, information processing ability or even recall ability. Now, it's important to know that nootropics can be synthetic or natural 
However, not all synthetics can be considered nootropics. And we're going to get into that in a little bit when we kind of make a differentiation between smart drugs and nootropics. But I think, you know, it's important to give everybody uh, a quick background into nootropics. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, it's interesting because not many people know this. And to be honest, like I didn't really even know this until pretty recently. But the guy who invented nootropics was a Romanian chemist. And he was the one who first synthesized the original tropic, a uh, nootropic, uh, paracetam. And most people have heard of the racetums or racetums or however you choose to pronounce it. There's really no right or wrong way. Um, but he synthesized paracetum in 1963. And then the actual definition for a nootropic, or at least the, the criteria for what could be considered a nootropic, was put out by, and I'm going to butcher his name, but it was Dr. Uh, Cornelou Georgia. And good Lord, that's probably not how you pronounce it at all. <laughs> but anyway, so he, he provided us <coughs> with uh, five criteria for for what we consider nootropics to be. And one of those first criteria is it has to enhance learning and memory. And in order to enhance learning and memory, there's three things that really have to happen. There's information processing, there's consolidation of that information, and then there's retrieval of that information. So if a nootropic is able to enhance any one of those processes, or if a compound is able to enhance any one of those processes, we can consider it a nootropic. So, for instance, I don't know, Andy. Like, what's your favorite nootropic nowadays? Single compound. Um, single compound would no most likely have to be magnesium L three and eight um, for multiple purposes for this the the sleep benefit from it, um, as well as the the more the calming sensation I get from it. Um, and that's probably due to my excessive caffeine use well, that I have ex um, chronic anxiety. However, magnesium l is by far one of my favorites. Right. And I think that I, and I would consider magnesium a nootropic because of the role it plays in what, like 300 plus biochemical reactions in the body. Um, you know, if, if you lack magnesium, then <laughs> something like learning memory, that kind of goes down the toilet. So I would cons I would consider magnesium to be a nootropic and and also a major cofactor. It kind of it kind of has one foot in each territory in a cofactor that it kind of facilitates a lot of processes that nootropics start um, and may even work as a nootropic itself. Again, like we said with the DHA, particularly in some populations who are a deficient in magnesium or even elderly populations who. Again, they're likely deficient in magnesium, but also lacking other in other nutrient areas. It's interesting that you say that because um, I'm going to diverge off topic. Magnesium is actually the second most deficient nutrient be behind vitamin D in the U.S. I think 70% of the U.S. population is magnesium deficient. It's interesting because the rates of like, like ADD, ADHD, anxiety, depression, they're all on the rise. I mean, you, you, we, we were talking about this earlier about how people, uh, when we were talking about what diverges, what kind of explains what a smart drug is and what a nootropic is, um, I was talking about how a lot of people probably got started on nootropics because they've tried something like Adderall or Vyvanse. 
and the prescription for those things is on the rise. The fact that we're deficient in it and you see a rise in all of these drugs makes kind of, you can put two and two together and be like, oh, magnesium is super important for your brain. It's funny, you mentioned Adderall and to like backtrack a little bit, you gave your intro to nootropics and my introduction to nootropics came around the same time frame. Um, I had never taken, again, I wouldn't consider Adderall a nootropic, um, but the first time I'd ever taken Adderall was in grad school when I was doing data collection for 10 to 12 hours a day um, and then working another job at night from probably 7 p.m. until midnight. And then I would have to open the lab at four or five in the morning and another 10 to 12 hours of data collection. I just, I could not handle it. And then, wasn't that, like, wasn't that study just published? That study was just published. And that was, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we ran that, we collected the data back in uh, 2015 into 2016. So mm-hmm. just kind of gives you, gives you a look into the glamorous world of uh, data collection and scientific experimentation um but yeah i had uh i had been introduced to adderall uh, for the first time and i was like holy shit this is a game changer and and eventually i remember um going into like i think it was like biomechanics class and i had taken like you had a bunch of stuff sitting on the counter i remember some of it was alpha gpc um you had your dha and i can't i think and, and then new pep was sitting there yeah i, I hate new pep for for reasons we could talk about uh, in a little bit, but uh, I can't remember the doses I took of all that. And I think there was something else. I just can't remember what it was, but I remember, I remember like just concocting this little thing and going up into class. And like, I had felt like, Oh my God, uh, I have mimicked the effects of Adderall and maybe taken too much of it. So I was like, <laughs> I was like uncomfortably stimmed up in the middle of class, I'm like sweating. I like texted Chris Irvin, the ketologist shout out. And was like, dude, I think I'm going to die. Like, I think my heart's going to explode. <laughs> but I had felt more clairvoyant than I had in my entire life. Um, and from there, the, the fascination kind of snowballed. Um, but anyways, so so we talked about the, the first criteria for something to be nootropic. It has to enhance learning and memory. Uh, the second criteria is it has to enhance or assist brain functions under disruptive conditions. So think about anything that could disrupt uh, cognitive activity, uh, something that most people can at least relate to would be like lack of oxygen. So lack of oxygen in the brain, it it doesn't take a rocket scientist to put together how that could cause some type of cognitive deficits. The brain is highly metabolically active. I think it accounts for, what is it? 20% 20 of our oxygen. 20 to 25% of our metabolic activity in a day. So you can see how just a, a slight lack of oxygen could affect processing happening there because the rate and the speed of processing happens so quickly. Uh, anything, any kind of homeostatic disruption that happens um, could throw things off by, I mean, just a couple milliseconds, but in the brain, you kind of make that relative to the rest of the bodily processes and you're really detracting from somebody's cognitive efficiency. So we think of compounds that, <coughs> excuse me, compounds that can increase cerebral ox- oxygenation like uh, vinpocetine. And vinpocetine is interesting because it kind of has one foot in the synthetic realm and one foot in the natural realm because it's derived from a compound in the periwinkle plant, but a lot of it is synthetically derived. 
So it's considered natural, but you could also consider it a synthetic. I know some people get scared away by the term synthetic, but there's really nothing wrong um, with most synthetics. And I think as we'll talk about as we get into like the recedums and stuff like that, that synthetics can be very beneficial. Uh, the, the biggest issue being is that there's a lack of actual like research to back a what they do, but b um, long-term ramifications. And again, we'll get to that a little bit. So the uh, another one like cerebral oxygenation, uh, ginkgo biloba. That one's a big one. That one's super popular. Um, that one is used by God, most people who don't even know what the hell it is. Right. So I, I know my girlfriend uses ginkgo and she loves it, but that's one you have to take for about two to four weeks to see, to see any real benefit from it. So not only does it increase cerebral oxygenation, but it also inhibits the breakdown of dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. Um, so it, so it does act as a, we call it a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, monoamine oxidase being the enzyme that breaks down catecholamines like dopamine, serotonin, so on and so forth. So it does inhibit those to a degree while increasing oxygenation and blood flow to the brain. So ginkgo is a great one for most people who just like dip in their toes in the water uh, and they want to feel, they want to get slight benefits from a compound without anything too overpowering. Yeah, but again, that one's kind of more long-term dosing. And then when I say long-term, not too long-term, but it could be anywhere from two to two to six weeks, depending on the person. Well, with you talking about ginkgo, I, that brought to mind something like pycnogenol or pine bark extract. Um, I, you're more read up on, on how pycnogenol works. Um, however, I, interestingly, I, I use it for people who, um, like older men, um, with like ED, um, erectile dysfunction, simply because I know that it does improve blood flow. Um, and I also use it for people who are looking for actually hair growth, which is interesting, but since it's supplying more, more blood to things like the brain, um, or the tissue in that area, it can actually improve hair growth, which is pretty interesting, but kind of different, different than what we're talking about it for. No, definitely though. Pycnogenol is, (laughs) that one is actually, it's pretty highly studied. The guys who patented that one, they did like a hell of a job in securing all the patents and the research for it. Um, that's why it's so damn expensive. Um, it's one of the more expensive natural compounds out there, like hands down, but uh, I mean, all of their data looks really impressive. And like you said, it's not just, we say cerebral oxygenation because that's a plus, right? But it's actually systemic whole body circulation for most of these things help call They help improve blood flow all over the body. And pycnogenol has results showing, again, like men with ED um, can be super beneficial for them. Um, people with, like you just said, like it can help improve hair growth. And I know that compounds like that, so basically pycnogenol takes... Uh, oligomers from the catechin content in the pine bark and that catechin content upregulates endothelial nitric oxide synthase and it also inhibits endothelin one which is a vasoconstrictor protein so put all that together and you really have a, a pretty versatile compound that can be used by both young and older people and can be actually pretty like paired pretty well with a lot of other compounds because it's not going to create a whole lot of conflict of interest uh, and you're not going to have a whole lot of detrimental side effects at suggested doses so pycnogenol super expensive in my opinion but um it, it definitely 
it definitely could be worth the money for some people. Now I choose not to pay for that one on my own because I think there are better alternatives in terms of pricing. Um, but if the price comes down on that one, I could tell you that that would probably be in my top 10 list and, and something that could, you know, pretty fr like frequent my, uh, frequent my medicine cabinet. So, but, but I, yeah, pycnogenol is great. Um, so to move on to the third, the third criteria for like, how do we classify a nootropic? Uh, it has to, and again, this is number three, it has to protect the brain against chemical and physical injuries. So we know that certain prescription drugs or even recreational drugs can just wreak havoc on different neural systems. Like let's take uh, methamphetamine use, for example. So not only can methamphetamines wreak havoc on the opioid system, but that inevitably ends up wreaking havoc on the dopaminergic system because we create these reward responses uh, and we also see addictive behavior over time. And then when we're not getting that hit, especially for, to the opioid receptor, uh, our dopamine systems, like it's begging for it, right? And now we see like a massive opioid epidemic in the United States. And I think that in large part is due to uh, heroin and painkillers, which is super unfortunate. But, you know, those are the types of things that, like I said, that they can wreak absolute havoc on the brain. And especially with a lot of these compounds out there that people don't really understand a whole lot, you know, we have, um, and this is particular, particularly targeted towards, we call it the fitness industry, because it's kind of <clears throat> the one industry, Andy, like I know you've probably seen this, because I mean, you used to work at GNC, but the, uh, the fitness industry in particular is very susceptible to influence. And because they're so susceptible, because they're always looking for what's new, what's hot, um, what gives them that extra edge, because people in the fitness industry will do anything if they think that it can improve their body composition or their performance in any type of way. So these companies can put out supplements with literally no data to back them. So we don't know long-term consequences for some of these things. And, you know, we, we see like the one, three, uh, dimethyl phenethylamine, stuff like that. Um, you know, the, what the DMA, uh, DMHA. Um, I'm not sure how DMA, I know DMHA is a derivative of DMAA. Um, I'm not 100% sure how it works, but since it's a derivative, I'm assuming it works similarly to DMAA. Right. I mean, you see all these new things come out. Like you have this, like, you no, know, there was a plant, Aria Dorensis plant, just for example, like that one's like N-phenethyl dimethylamine, but it's all, they're all analogs of the same thing. Right. And a lot of these, you know, are super stimulatory. And we also have people like, oh, like, let's pair it with a compound that uh, attempts like let's increase the half-life of it because these things have very short half-lives and when people try to increase the half-life of these things i mean let's be real there's probably a reason that the half-life is so short because if you prolong something like that you're probably just tearing apart your reward systems your dopamine systems which that one's you know over time now the brain won't change its structure for any single stimulus but when you expose it to repeated stimuli and strong stimuli over and over and over again, day after day, uh, the, the structural changes of the brain will take place. And I can tell you that not most times, most times it's, it's not going to be for the better. 
So, so actual nootropics actually protect against physical and chemical injury insofar that some compounds, like again, let's just, let's use amphetamines for an example. We know that they can activate, we talked about dopaminergic neurons, but mainly through the way they work on the opioid system and the glutamate system. So NMDA receptors uh, and PA receptors. And we know that to overstimulation of NMDA, <coughs> excuse me, overstimulation of NMDA receptors can result in what we call uh, neurotoxicity. And that neurotoxicity starts to prune synapses and eventually neurons die off as a, as a consequence of programmed cell death because they just can't hand the tox handle the toxicity anymore. So there are a lot of compounds out there. Most herbals will, there's some kind of research, and this is mostly in vitro data, but most herbals out there do have some research that show at least in cell cultures that they can protect against overexcitation to the NMDA receptors and neurotoxicity. Now, again, there are some herbals that can cause uh, neurotoxicity, but that's at like very heavy doses. And, you know, basically there should be no reason that people aren't using suggested doses. So put a, I want to put a caveat to that. That's probably not like, Hey, I can go use heroin and take these supplements to help protect my brain. There's probably a point. There's probably a point of diminishing returns there, where the longer drug addiction drug addiction incurs, the the more damage you're going to do to your brain. And there's probably a point of no return. Yeah, no. There's there's no there's actually there's no reason that anybody should be going and doing anything that can damage any system within their brain, like not like what, well, yeah, let's like rule out the cocaine, heroin, amphetamines, like something. There's, there's no reason that anybody should be using those recreationally or, or for any other reason, really. You can't take any of these nootropic compounds to protect yourself against those things. Um, the, the stimulation is just too intense in my opinion. And now you might be able to take some things that can lower your risk of neurotoxicity to compounds that, you know, say you are using stimulatory compounds, like more natural ones, like we just said, like the N-methyl, or sorry, the N-phenethyldimethylamine, like the Aria drensis plant, um, which has a phenethylamine backbone, but it can be pretty stimulatory. Now you can pair it with certain types of herbals that, that can protect against any possible negative side effects, at least acutely. That doesn't mean like, I right, now I can take this shit every day and I'm all set. You know, that it just, it doesn't really work like that, particularly when you're talking about brain function. And what, what about something um, more common like caffeine? What about consuming too much caffeine? Can it do something similar? Now, yeah, you know, caffeine is something that, again, most people, especially nowadays, at least you shouldn't be. I know there's some people out there taking like up to a gram, over a gram of caffeine a day. In which case, if you're one of those people, that used to be you. <laughs> God, I yeah, you. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So if you're one of those people, then that's a good that's a good warning sign that it's time to start to taper your caffeine dosage down. Maybe try alternatives, um, and and maybe start to wean off of caffeine altogether for a good period of time before reintroducing that as a 
we'll call it, we'll call it a nootropic compound because I do consider caffeine a nootropic. It's certainly a cognitive enhancer, but it's gotten a lot of heat lately and everybody's looking for, and that's why nootropics have become so popular is because everybody's looking for an alternative to caffeine. They call it, let's call them quote unquote safe alternatives to caffeine or these non-stimulant options, which drives me up the damn wall. And we'll, we'll talk, you know, we are going to talk <laughs> about that, but there's most nootropics do have some type of stimulatory effect. They just do so in a different, by a different mechanism than caffeine does. And people have been demonizing caffeine and not really paying enough attention to the fact that it's not the caffeine, it's their usage. It's the dose and it's the frequency of dose. Caffeine, I believe like similar to, let's say something like marijuana, like if you don't have a medical condition and you don't need it every day, well, it can still have benefits for you, but I don't think it was something that was meant to be taken every day and in high doses. And there's research to suggest that it really wasn't because that one can damage memory processing in the hippocampus by actually like reducing gray matter and killing neurons there over time. But if you're not doing it every day and you're not taking high doses, there can be a lot of therapeutic benefit. And caffeine, I think, is very similar. I think that people just don't strategically use it. They become reliant on it. And, you know, they end up building tolerance issues. And now they have problems and, and everybody says, oh, like, I got adrenal fatigue and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, A, you don't even know what that is. B, you're talking about, <laughs> B, you're talking about something much different when you talk about adrenal fatigue. But um, it's not the caffeine. It's your usage of it. I mean, let's be real. Everything is toxic at a certain dose. Water is toxic at a certain dose. So let's kind of end that right there. <laughs> Moving on, the fourth criteria for what classifies as a nootropic is it has to enhance sustained or continuous cognitive processes. So Let's use this example. While we're at rest, like if you're just sitting in, let's say you're sitting in class, you're sitting at work, and you're literally kind of daydreaming off in la-la land, or even when you're asleep, you have cognitive processes that are tonically and continuously active. So they're constantly doing what they need to do despite your in-awareness of them happening. So these functions cost resources. Some nootropics can actually increase the efficiency or the rate of the substrate applied to the brain to maintain or enhance these processes. And to give an example of what one of these processes is, is well, as I'm sitting here at my desk, I'm picking up all types of stimuli from all around this room. Even though not a lot is happening around me, I'm picking up the light in my photoreceptors that are bouncing off the wall and bouncing off certain pictures so that I can perceive certain color patterns. Um, I can hear my cat in the other room, like playing with her toys, jumping around. Um, and I kind of habituated that out, you know, but I, I'm receiving all this stimuli that it's not helping me in the current moment do what I need to do, which is this podcast. So my brain kind of takes in all that information. It has to sort through it and it has to decide what to do with it. it. It has to know that, okay, like I need to be vigilant of my surroundings. Um, and just in case something happens, if something came into my periphery, I would need to react quickly. However, 
it's also doing a lot of what we call smart forgetting. So it's taking a lot of the stimuli that I'm receiving that's not helping me do what I'm trying to do at the moment. And it's just kind of tossing it to the side because, I mean, A, it just wouldn't be a good use of my attention at the moment, but that costs resources. So certain nootropics enhance the brain's ability to do baseline, to basically enhance its ability to continue with its baseline cognitive processing, be that while we're asleep uh, or while we're awake or even while we're doing a task. Of course, that's not baseline. However, as we know, a lot of these things can increase the rate of the information we take in, the rate that we can process it, uh, and the amount that we can consolidate in a given time. At least that's what is theorized and speculated, though there's not a whole lot of actual research to back those kinds of things up. There's a lot to absorb. Yeah, my bad. Whoever's listening, go back and, and listen to that again. It's a bunch of mouth, <laughs> a bunch of mouth garbage. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it was super informative. Um, I, I, I was trying to keep, keep up with you as you were going. I was, it was like you rehearsed that. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, I'm not even really positive what I just said, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you were... It shows that you're knowledgeable on the topic. Um, At least, that, you know, that's what, what some would say. But So that's that was the four criteria to meet the definition of a nootropic? Well, that was four. We got one more. Oh, there's one more. Okay. Yeah, and this one's interesting. So this one actually brings into um, brings into the forefront the, the question of – are nootropics stimulatory or are they classified as stimulants or depressants? Because the original definition was a bit interesting and contradictory. So I kind of changed it. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. If <laughs> I just changed to, it just because <laughs> legally, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that, but I'm going to start a revolution. So <clears throat> my definition of the fifth criteria is it has to possess few side effects. So okay. by possess few side effects, I mean nootropics should have low levels of toxicity at recommended doses. And what's interesting is the original definition, it had in that part. So it was like, yeah, nootropics should have few side effects. Um, obviously, um, it, the assumption was at recommended doses, but it also, the, the original definition was also, um, can't be stimulatory or depressive to cognitive processes. And that one to me is a bit contradictory for the reason being is that the definition of a stimulant is anything or any substance that increases or enhances physiological or nervous activity. So that's super broad. Let's, let's think about anything that can increase physiological or nervous activity. Well, <clears throat> we already know that taking in something that can increase acetylcholine or increases our usage rate of usage of acetylcholine, I mean, that increases communication between neurons, correct? You're drinking a gator. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> by nature, that increases nervous activity, correct? Yes. Okay, so by taking something that boosts acetylcholine, then we fit the definition of a stimulant, correct? Yes. Okay, so already that, or, <coughs> that fifth criteria kind of 
uh, the logic kind of falls apart on its head. Um, anytime you increase dopamine, you know, if, if you take something that's that increases dopamine activity, let's say like a high dose of tyrosine, a lot of people are putting that in pre-workouts nowadays, um, and your heart rate increases at all, even a little bit past baseline, you've now increased physiological activity. By that definition, exercise could be a nootropic. Technically, or a stimulant yeah, yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and also like, so can't depress the, can't depress the human brain. And a, de- a depressant is just the opposite of a stimulant. So anything that lessens or reduces physiological or nervous activity. But I mean, anything we take to use for sleep, whether we're modulating the GABA or serotonin receptor or directly agonizing it, well, we might be trying to slow down communication in the brain um, or shut down certain processes, and we might slow down local or systematic metabolism. That fits the definition of a depressant. So I took that part out of the criteria for what classifies as a nootropic because most things considered nootropics, not all, but most, are going to increase nervous or physiological activity. And like I said, physiological activity could be anything from heart rate. Um, it could be anything for like heart rate to metabolism in any part of the body. So I, I removed that definition and kind of made it just a little bit more straightforward. And it has to possess few side effects, meaning that there have to be has to be almost non-existent toxicity at recommended doses, at least when being used for appropriate periods of time. You mentioned something that it can't in the previous definition that it can't depress the the uh, central nervous system. Um, so, what about people using? A lot of people may use marijuana as a nootropic, quote unquote. Where, for example, I've heard of people studying for tests, um, and they study for the test for a week, and the entire time they're doing it, they're high. And then they go take the test and they take it sober and they actually do really, really bad. But you replicate that same scenario and you study for the test high and then you take the test high and you do really, really good. So is that is that a different... Your audio had cut out when you said, so people, you know people that study for the test high and then they take it sober. Do you say they do well or do poor? Do poor. I oh, understood. Is that more of like, is that a learning thing or is that a kind of intertwined there? Specificity thing? It's yeah. interesting. It's interesting because it, I don't know that that's ever been looked at. It's interesting though because you, you could make a theoretical argument that um, the law of specificity would state that if, if you're one of those people that needs to study high and then you go in to take that test, you're probably – smarter doing it high you know um or you're probably more apt to get better scores um because you've practiced you 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 need to take that test under the conditions you practice um you know that's one theoretical argument though i don't know what the correct answer is to that but in my head now for most people thc not necessarily just marijuana but the thc in it is not going to be effective for studying in general uh, not for memory. You know, THC actually reduces the amount of adenylylcyclase in the brain. It kind of inhibits that protein. Adenylcyclase or cyclase um, 
that's what activates and raises levels of cyclic adenosine monophosphate or CAMP. CAMP, when that's really high, CAMP activates other protein kinases. Those protein kinases then go and they signal for the act, <coughs> excuse me, the upregulation of the protein called CREB, C-R-E-B. And then that protein activates a whole bunch of other factors like nerve growth factor, um, brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF. And a lot of those things then kind of continue to activate what we call long-term potentiation. So THC, because it inhibits adenylylcyclase, it kind of reduces the, the ability or limits <coughs> short-term memory capacity. And now if you're limiting short-term memory capacity, well, if you're doing that chronically over and over and over again, you're bound to affect your long-term memory because you're not storing new memories super efficiently, at least not as efficiently as you could be. So in my opinion, if people find that they, they can study better for tests using marijuana or THC, my opinion is that they find that they're able to focus better because they might be reducing the amount of activity in certain structures or pathways of the brain that are activated by something like norepinephrine or epinephrine. They might be reducing that so that their brain is more calm and they can find that they're not so jumpy. They're not jumping around a whole lot. Um, so it might help people focus better, but it is my opinion that it's not going to do you better for in terms of memory. So you need to be focused to properly consolidate memories. However, being focused doesn't necessarily equate to properly or optimally consolidating memories. At least that's my opinion on the subject. I, I prompted that question because there's a lot of, I know of a lot of people who do and recommend studying or trying to learn when they're, when, when they've used, used marijuana or THC or whatever bit, whatever it may be. And I've seen a lot of research showing that it may not be the best, best, sorry, not a lot, a little research showing it may not be the best thing, but I wanted to get your explanation on that because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be my, uh, my general opinion on that particular topic. So all right, we just like in, in a very long drawn out manner, uh, you know, we gave the five criteria for what classifies as a nootropic. So I'll list them off one after the other really quick. I go one, they enhance learning and memory. Two, they enhance or assist brain functions under disruptive conditions. Three, they protect the brain against chemical and physical injuries. Four, they enhance sustained or continuous cognitive processes. And five, they possess very few side effects. All right, guys. So, man, that, that five criteria took a lot longer than we anticipated. So what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to cut this episode there. And don't worry. I know we said we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to keep recording and continue to talk about those. But we're going to release that in a separate episode that's going to follow this one pretty much immediately. So I hope you guys learned a little bit about what a nootropic is and how to classify that. 
in the next episode, we're going to be talking more about the difference between smart drugs and nootropics, how to differentiate between the two, and then also probably get a little bit into actually stacking compounds together and certain things that we might need to consider before we start doing that, particularly if we're new to this. So Andy, you got anything? No, guys, thanks for listening. And this next episode we're about to film is going to be awesome. Um, I'm excited to get into it. So We're just like telling we'll you said, it's going to be awesome so you listen. <laughs> no, it's going to be great. If you guys learn a lot here in this episode, you're going to learn a hell of a lot more in the next episode. So like Will said, we're going to be releasing this shortly after. So look out for it. Make sure if you're on iTunes to, to subscribe to our episode or What's Up Radio. If you're on YouTube, make sure that you have you, you like our or what do you do on YouTube? You follow us, or I can't remember, to... You talk shit on YouTube. Yeah, you talk a lot of shit on YouTube. But if, if, you, don't like it, if you don't like what we're saying, then feel free to talk shit, and we'll, we'll address it. Um, and don't worry, we're not going to be like, 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 go off on you and call you out. That's not our... I will. I will, will. But that's not, that's not my play. Um, but yeah, guys, if you like this episode, stay tuned for the next one, because it's going to be highly informative guys leave us leave us a review wherever you're listening please mm-hmm. let us know how we're doing oh and to let you guys know where we're at if you don't know already we're on itunes we're on youtube we're on soundcloud and we're on the google play store word all right guys here's for this episode we'll catch you next time all right thanks guys <laughs>